Six weeks of bombing and shelling by Russian forces in Ukraine continue unabated. Ukraine cities lie in ruins while mass graves have been discovered. The town of Bucha, the ground zero for the call of genocide, which now echoes around the world. Is it genocide? Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. Canada's MPs unanimously approved a motion to call Russia's attack genocide. U.S. President Biden and other world leaders have made the same accusation. Russian President Vladimir Putin has said it as well, citing, quote, attacks on Russian-speaking people in the eastern part of the Ukraine. He calls that genocide against Russia. Now, the term itself is very political and in need of thorough investigation. Runpublished.vote question asks you, is Russia's attack on Ukraine genocide? Yes, no, or unsure. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote and have your voice heard. Coming up on the Unpublished Cafe, we'll chat with Elliot Tepper of the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, as well John Packer, a professor of international conflict resolution at the University of Ottawa. But first, I'm pleased to be joined by Eve Angler. He is a writer and activist at Canadian Dimension. And Eve, first off, do you think what's going on in Ukraine is that genocide? No, uh, I agree with Emmanuel Macron, the French president, that um, that it's it's you know certainly uh, there are war crimes, and certainly uh, Russia's invasion is a a you know a contrary to international law, a illegal invasion. Um, but no, the uh, the House of Commons resolution was uh, was part of Canada's process of uh, escalating tensions um, rather than seeking out a negotiated solution to the horrors taking place in Ukraine. Now, you feel Canada is partly responsible for the origin of this conflict due to its encouragement of NATO expansion back in the early 90s. But that's 30 years ago. How did it lead to today? Oh, I think Canada, uh, I mean, again, I repeat, this is definitely a legal Russian invasion, but Canada pursued policies that helped precipitate the invasion. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, there are many facets to that. Uh, the expansion of NATO being one of those. Canada was a very strong proponent of expanding NATO eastward, despite the promises to uh, to Russian officials uh, at the end of the Cold War not to do so. Um, uh, in 2008, of course, is the famous uh, uh, NATO summit where there's a push to have Ukraine uh, uh, join the alliance, and Stephen Harper pushed that forward, pushed hard on that alongside the uh, George W. Bush, the U.S. president, against the wishes of uh, Germany and France, and of course of of Russia. Uh, so Canada has been pushing the NATO, and, and Melanie Jolie, a foreign minister, even in January, even amidst the growing tensions, she doubled down on that push for uh, Ukraine to join NATO. And it should be pointed out that Ukrainians' polls until 2014 showed that most Ukrainians didn't actually want to join NATO. And what happened in 2014 is uh, is uh, probably the most important Canadian contribution to what's going on today, which is that we helped overthrow an elected president that actually had brought in a, 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 a policy, a law that that said that the country would remain neutral, um, that wouldn't join that it wouldn't join NATO. And we helped uh, undermine Viktor Yanukovych's government for multiple years, basically since he got elected in, in 2010. And uh, and then we helped in, in actually overthrowing him, uh, including the fact that there were uh, opposition protesters that actually used the Canadian embassy in Kyiv for over a week as a safe haven during the uh, so-called the uh, Maidan uh, protests. Mm -hmm. um, clear violation of international law. 
uh, total, uh, you know, intervention in in in, um, in Ukrainian uh, sovereignty. Uh, on December fifth, fifth, at the start of the Maidan protests, John Baird, then Foreign Affairs Minister, actually went to the Maidan Square in in central Kiev, and and uh, joined the protests. And Paul Grodd, the head of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, uh, announced that uh, that uh, Baird was at the at the rally, and people started chanting Canada, Canada, Canada. So basically, Canadian government has been pushing the uh, division within the Ukraine, and there have you know there are long-standing historical divisions between a more Russian-oriented east and south of the country, and west and central. That's more uh, you know Central European in, in orientation and more uh, NATO or you know Western-oriented in their in their uh, linguistic uh, political outlooks, etc. And so Canadian government is right at the center of, of, of deepening those tensions. And of course, 2014, the ouster of Yanukovych led directly to uh, the war in the east of the Ukraine, where 14,000 people had been killed uh, before Russia's uh, brutal invasion of you know, February 24th. Um, and throughout that time, from 2014 until you know, till Russia's invasion, Canada was really uh, strengthening the, the forces within Kyiv that were pushing for a more aggressive uh, uh, civil war. They were pushing for continuation of the of the conflict in the east, uh, and that you know undermined the the Minsk uh, Accords that were signed, uh, Minsk II that was signed in February 2015. The Canadian government basically worked to sabotage the, the peace accord that was you know agreed to by uh, German French uh, uh, negotiators, and then actually you know, brought to the United Nations Security Council even. Um, and Canada's training mission helped and undermined that. And that was all understood right at the time. That was the point uh, of Canada's, you know, Operation Unifier training of the, the Ukrainian uh, military that had, you know, largely collapsed after the, the 2014 coup um, was to uh, strengthen the hand of those who wanted to, you know, continue the civil war uh, in the east of the country. So, so Canada, you know, helped precipitate, uh, there's no doubt. I mean, it's not, again, it doesn't justify what Russia did, but, but these aggressive policies and there's other elements to it, the whole, you know, bringing in of aggressive U.S. weapon systems in Romania, in Poland, uh, the Americans ripping up the U.N. Uh, nuclear uh, disarmament treaties, uh, the ABM back in the early 2000s, and then more recently, the, the INF treaty. Um, the, the Canadian government's reaction in 2019 was to blame Russia, even though it was the Americans that withdrew from the INF treaty. So these are part of the context to understand what Russia is doing is clearly, you know, brutal militaristic uh, response from a country that has a long imperial history. But you cannot deny that the U.S., Canada, and other some other NATO countries uh, pursued policies basically trying to uh, provoke uh, a, a, a U.S. reaction and basically just escalate tensions. And unfortunately, they continue to do that right into today. The you know sending more and more weapons, it, it, while not ever talking about negotiations, while never talking about the diplomatic solution, that is just going to continue and prolong the uh, the horrors that we're seeing. Uh, in, in terms of NATO, and that seems to be Russia's biggest problem. But it's a defensive mechanism. It doesn't go looking for a fight. So, you know, it's not like NATO is going to invade Russia. I can't understand what the what the issue is with that. A defensive mechanism. Ask, tell that to the uh, 
the people in Serbia, tell that to people in uh, Afghanistan, tell that to people in, in Libya. I mean, NATO is not a defensive mechanism, never was a defensive mechanism. We go back to 1949. And you can look at what Lester Pearson said when he helped establish NATO in 1949. Uh, they just, he justified going, sending 27,000 Canadian troops to Korea in the early 1950s, uh, partly on the, the creation of NATO. Um, that's a, that's a uh, you know, absolute silliness of, uh, of uh, Canadian and American uh, propaganda to think that NATO was a defense arrangement. Ask, ask, the, ask the Algerians that Canada was providing weapons to the French while they killed hundreds of thousands of, of, of Algerians in the 1950s. Ask the, the Vietnamese while the French were massacring people in, in, in Vietnam and Canada was providing weapons under the NATO mutual assistance program through the 1950s. Ask, ask the, uh, the Congolese while we were providing weapons to the Belgians. I mean, that's, that's just farcical uh, uh, Western propaganda that that nobody elsewhere in the world uh, you know even you know takes seriously for a second. Does Ukraine have its own sovereignty? No, I mean they, since immediately after after uh, the breakup of the USSR, the Canadian government well before that, but but clearly from from ninety one, saw the Ukraine as a way to weaken a geopolitical competitor, which is Russia. This, is, this didn't begin, you know, this, the, the conflict that Canada's been in with Russia didn't begin, you know, two months ago, didn't begin six years ago, didn't begin 2014, didn't begin 1991. Canada sent troops to the Crimean War in the, in the 1850s, 6,000 Canadian, with the British, of course, uh, the Canadian, 6,000 Canadian troops invaded Russia in 1917 and were there for a couple of years, even after the end of World War I. Uh, uh, you know, throughout the 1920s and 30s, we saw Russia as, this, as, a, as a competitor. We didn't have diplomatic relations. Uh, obviously, there's the Cold War. Uh, uh, so, you know, this is a longstanding uh, uh, geopolitical battle you know the great game for control of Eastern Europe and and uh, and uh, you know Central Asia. Uh, that's you know the background to understanding some of this. Ukraine is is to a large extent a proxy in this bigger geopolitical battle, and and so you know Ukrainians, it, it's a divided country. Uh, uh, and 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 a divided country. Uh, if if you cared about a divided country, you would not try to uh, ramp amp it, ramp up the tensions between the east and the west of that country. You would you would pursue policies like neutrality. You would pursue pursue policies that you know like federalism, right? With the Minsk Accords, the peace agreement signed in, in in early 2015. It's about federalism. It's about it's about right now how it works in Ukraine. Is is the central government appoints governors. So just imagine if you had a government in Ottawa that was a, you know, backed uh, sort of a, a, you know, Western, you know, Alberta, Saskatchewan dependent government that was appointing the, the premier of Quebec. Or conversely, if you had, if you had, if you had the, you know, a, a Quebec dominated federal government that was appointing the premier of Alberta. That's a recipe for division. That's a recipe for division. And what the Minsk Accords were about is bringing in a form of federalism, a form of uh, autonomy for the east of, of, of the Russian-oriented east of, 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 of the Ukraine. And we work to undermine that. Um, uh, you know, so, so this is kind of the, this is the context. And so, no, Russia, Ukraine is not a sovereign uh, country. Ukraine is under, uh, the government of Ukraine has been at different periods under a lot of 
Russian influence. And, and in the last, certainly since 2014, it has been under the thumb of Washington and Ottawa being, you know, a central player. The Petro Poroshenko, the, the former president uh, after the 2004, 2014 coup, he referred to Jason Kenney, then, then Canada, then Harper's defense minister, as the godfather of the modern Ukrainian uh, military for instigating Operation Unifier. Right. We have built up this Ukrainian force that is that was fighting a civil war in the east that was not, you know, not allowing for a peace accord. And and, you know, we're central to you know, understanding, um, uh, uh, you know, the fact that the Ukrainian government has been, um, you know, very belligerent uh, 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 towards um, uh, the, the eastern part of the eastern oriented part of the country and and belligerent towards uh uh towards moscow um again this doesn't this doesn't justify what the you know the horrors that russia's inflicted uh but there is this context that is completely um uh, wiped out from uh from the dominant media in this country you know canada has a massive ukrainian diaspora do you feel that despite canada not being a, a large power on the on the world stage it's having a bigger influence on this russia ukraine relation oh, oh there's no doubt that canada is a you know a significant player i mean this is a ukraine think about how far away this is from canada uh, uh geographically this is very far away and canada is a significant player i mean the global mail had it on the front page uh, sometime i think in the early february a couple of weeks before the russian invasion where it was uh christian freeland and uh, and trudeau who convinced uh, zelensky to try to, to basically end the uh, judicial process against the former president uh, poroshenko uh, they 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 get on the phone and they're pressing the 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 uh, uh, president of Ukraine to you know release uh, uh, you know political opponents. Um, they have a ton of influence. You know, if you go back, you, you, lots of the nationalist uh, kind of uh, mythology in the Ukraine is is you know. Canada is right at the center of, of uh, ideologically creating that with the you know, Ukrainian Studies uh, Institute there at the uh, University of Alberta back in the 1970s. So this is, you know, Canada is an influential uh, uh, force within Ukraine. Like I said, you know, they refer to, Poroshenko referred to um, Kenny as the godfather of, of the Ukrainian, modern Ukrainian uh, military. You have a Canadian battalion of the uh, in the foreign legion now you know fighting uh because there's so many canadian um you know for primary for former soldiers that are you know fighting um uh, in the ukraine uh uh today uh the, you know the recent imf uh initiative that they set up a fund for ukraine it was it was canada that basically set that up with the imf um uh, to you know, have a mechanism for countries to provide a, a financial assistance uh, uh, to the Ukraine, and 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 you know that would be lo lovely to believe that's going to come with no strings attached, but but likely that's going to come with uh, you know further privatizations, further neoliberal uh, uh, policies, as the IMF usually uh, uh, forces on countries. Um, so no, Canada is a significant player, and, uh, and and we understand. I mean, we're at war. Let's be let's be clear. We're at war with Russia right now. Canada's at war. We we the, the whole media sphere acts like we're at war. I mean, they don't never say that openly, but the the level of like you know fear of of you know talking about this it, this subject critically makes you makes it feel like we're at war. But 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 concretely, right? We're it's mm. you know we're providing weapons. We got troops on the ground. We have a Canadian general, a, a top Canadian general 
the official story is on April 5th, he left the Canadian military. Now he's in, you know, fighting in Ukraine. Um, you know, this is, this is level of, 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 um, uh, of engagement. And, you know, we've, there's been stories about uh, Joint Task Force 2. The Global News reported that uh, just before the Russian invasion about Joint Task Force 2, Canada's special forces, highly secretive special forces, how they were in Ukraine. Um, you know, we, it's not clear where, where that's at. Uh, all these stories coming out about the Americans and the British uh, uh, on the ground uh, in the Ukraine, providing all kinds of intelligence for, you know, the, the story in the New York Times about the, the killing is about 12 apparently 12 Russian generals that have been killed and it's American intelligence that's helped the Ukrainians uh, uh, kill these Russian generals. Um, so, you know, further stories will come out about exactly how, how engaged Canada is on the ground. But I think at this point, we should understand uh, the fact that, that Canada is at war. Maybe it's not the full-scale war, but, you know, 2011 bombing, NATO bombing of, of, of Libya, that also wasn't a full-scale war. That was, you know, bombing from the sky, and there was probably some Canadian special forces on the ground, but it wasn't a, you know, full-fledged uh, uh, ground invasion. Um, so, so what is defined as a war is, you know, always a sort of, uh, you know, where that line is is not always exactly clear, but, but I, I feel like the the both in concrete terms and in uh, at the sort of political climate uh, in this country, uh, uh, certainly it, it, we're acting like uh, we're at war with uh, Russia and Ukraine. Eve, I want to thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Eve Engler is a writer with Canadian Dimension. Has Canada and NATO created this chaos with the talk of possible expansion? Elliot Tepper is a senior fellow at the Norm Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, and he joins us now. And Elliot, first off, we'll, we'll talk Russia, Ukraine, and, and in your eyes, is what's going on genocide? You know, there's a technical definition of genocide, and we should point out that our parliament has unanimously passed a resolution. They don't they couldn't agree on what time of the day it is normally, but unanimously they've, uh, in this case, the government joining in, unlike with the vote on the Uyghurs a while ago, have said, yes, this is genocide. But then it all comes back to, on the other hand, we have to give this to the legal uh, department. We'll have to check this out. My problem here is this. I'm afraid that we put ourselves in a situation, Ed, where if it's not called genocide, it just doesn't really matter. And that's nonsense. What's going on is criminal behavior under international law. Uh, there's various categories of criminal behavior. The top one is genocide. And indeed, we may be seeing genocide. That remains to be officially determined. Our parliament says it is. And um, president of the U.S. says it is. But, oh, wait, we still have to go through their processes. But crimes against humanity, the crime of aggression, uh, war crimes, those are all serious charges punishable under international law. We have referred the situation already to the International Criminal Court. We've sent 10 MPs over to help gather, uh, I'm sorry, RCMP people uh, to go help gather evidence. So there's a serious effort underway by Canada to join others, starting with the Ukrainians themselves to determine the degree to which there's criminal culpability. And I, I believe we should pursue that vigorously. Do you think Canada and the West has some responsibility for the conflict with their their talk of NATO expansion, or at least that's the interpretation from Russia? Yes. Well, there's quick answers to that. Uh, one was given by by President Zelensky himself, saying, uh, "2014, we were not members of NATO. Uh, we were not armed. We were not 
we were a demilitarized state. We were a neutral state, and we got invaded, occupied uh, chunks of our territory by Russia. So this is all about NATO, not. And uh, we also have Professor Ignatieff, as I will refer to him, who's pointed out nobody coerced all those states uh, that have joined NATO after the breakup of the Soviet Union. They wanted to join NATO because they had been invaded and occupied uh, by the USSR. They know what Russian colonialism means. They don't want it. So I think this is a, it's a plausible argument. Oh, you're provoking him. But uh, no, I, I don't sure. I, I agree with Professor Ignatiev and others. Mm. Uh, this is not because of there's an encroachment. It's the sense that Mr. Putin has lost a sphere of influence, perhaps, that he wants back. And he's willing to use these, these techniques to get them. But it's not because NATO is there. You know, that's what I was going to get to is uh, the sphere of influence. Russia concerned about that. But, you know, the other side of the coin there is perhaps those other countries don't want Russia's influence. And they are sovereign nations. Exactly. And they want to stay sovereign nations. We have the interesting uh, uh, phenomenon now that both (laughs) Sweden and Finland, notoriously neutral states, and they were neutral in the Second World War. This goes back. That's core to their foreign policy identity, have suddenly said, no, we think we're going to seriously look at uh, joining NATO now because, you know, we've seen what happens if you're not a member of NATO. Ukraine is not a member. They want to become members, the Baltic states around them, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, that whole region around them is indeed um, under threat. The United States, first of all, the Secretary General of the United Nations uh, of of, um, NATO said, we would welcome them. And the United States has said, as did he, that after they apply, we are confident they're going to be admitted. And Canada, by the way, is being urged to support this. And Canada is vigorously going to support uh, those memberships. But you will automatically be covered somehow or another, even before you become members. We'll try to extend some security uh, guarantee over, over your country. And Finland, of course, has a long border with Russia, which would make a, if, if, if the reason there was concern in Moscow about the expansion of NATO. Why did he create a bigger expansion? Are the economic sanctions having an impact on Russia? Yes. The uh, the question, generally speaking, is will sanctions matter anywhere? And in fact, we have evidence, you know, Iran, for example, really wants out from under the sanctions they have. The sanctions that have been put on, a couple of comments on them. First of all, I don't think Mr. Putin could possibly have conceived that in eight days, eight days after invading, there would be efforts, successful efforts to put a sanctions regime on that creates for Russia uh, the status of a pariah state. They became a pariah state because of these sanctions. Some of them are immediate and may hit home or they can't go to Eurovision or play soccer, things that matter. But the bite of the sanctions are only just now starting. Uh, The... Small things that you don't hear much about, the container ships companies that take goods out of the country will no longer dock there. Well, very soon, Russia will not be able to import, for example, in parts to replace their military, and they won't be able to get their exports out. So these are very serious sanctions. They're expanding. Europe has just announced an embargo on oil. Everybody is saying, look, what good are sanctions if you continue to give them a billion dollars a day? They're spending a billion dollars a day on the war. Uh, so it all comes out even. Europe has taken the extraordinary step, and Germany a major U-turn 
in their foreign policy to supply military equipment, which they haven't been willing to do in the past, but also now to find a way out. Russia is creating itself the loss of its only source of income. In this conflict, we're starting to see who supports Russia and, and who supports Ukraine. Uh, obviously, a lot in the West supporting Ukraine, but any surprises on who is supporting or uh, sort of trying to say they're staying yeah. neutral with Russia? Yes, uh, the, there's an effort now. Canada is leading this effort or joining this effort to kick them out of the G20. They're already out of what used to be the G8. After 2014, that became the G7. Uh, and Russia's response is, Mr. Putin personally has said, don't worry, we have other friends, and they do. India and China have both taken stands that are not formal condemnations. And if you add those two populations together, plus some other new, others who would not officially go as far as to condemn Russia, a majority of the globe's population actually has not joined in the condemnation of Russia. But uh, that overlooks the fact that China has to... Well, talk more about China if you'd like, but both China and India have to be careful they don't run afoul of the sanctions regime. They're global in nature. Uh, they have to rethink their situations. The, the Indians have a long, deep uh, military relationship. Their equipment has been coming from, from uh, Russia, but now there's a move inside India. We'd better diversify and buy uh, more globally. China is a very interesting case. Uh, they, uh, they don't want to run afoul of the regime so uh, of the sanctions regime. So on the one hand, they abstained on the vote in, <laughs> in the UN General Assembly vote on whether to condemn Russia. So is that good or bad? They didn't condemn them. That's bad. But they also abstained rather than saying so. China has to walk a fine line here. China is the major beneficiary of this war. We've talked about this, uh, the diversion of attention away from China's behavior is nothing but a gift. The possibility of getting the bank backdoor uh, off ramp for you know escape from, from from the sanctions. China says we'll buy your oil, we'll buy your gas. Uh, so they're getting long term deals at a at a good price. But China has to also be very careful. Right now, some of their own companies are no longer investing in Russia, pulling back, and other countries. And this hasn't been noticed much. Other countries are now pulling back from investing in China because of the COVID disruptions and because of the, the Ukraine-Russian war. So they are now beginning to pay an economic as well as reputational cost. They'll have to walk that fine line. They also have an excellent relationship, by the way, with Ukraine. Elliot, I want to thank you for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome, Ed. Elliot Tepper is a senior fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Genocide is a term that is not used lightly and requires in-depth investigation before assessing blame. John Packer is a professor of international conflict resolution with the University of Ottawa's Human Rights Research and Education Center, and he joins us now. And John, how does one assess whether it's genocide? Well, uh, that uh, a little bit depends on who we're talking about. Uh, because uh, a principal distinction that needs to be made is between an individual, if you uh, are responsible or might commit uh, genocide, your actions, uh, and the state. So this is often confused. People talk about Russia and they say Russia at the International Criminal Court and things like that. That's completely conflating uh, things that don't go together, oil and water. So a state does not commit a crime uh, in international law. 
uh, a state is responsible for certain conduct, and a state can never be prosecuted or tried in that sense. Uh, a state can be uh, only pursued by other states and may be found to be responsible for breaches and then have to pay you know, reparations or whatever. An individual would be, must be individual. You or me would have to be personally arrested, personally tried. We have human rights, so we have rights to due process of law. But I mean, in simple terms, you know, a state can't be arrested, can't be put in jail. Uh, it's just a different thing. I'm just thinking back to it. Wasn't the last, I guess, calls of genocide uh, that I'm thinking about were uh, in, in Yugoslavia and Slobodan Milosevic. Uh, was he not tried? He was tried, was he not? But that's exactly right. An individual person named Slobodan Milosevic, right. not Serbia. Serbia was never pursued. And so he was uh, initially, uh, when people were concerned about him, uh, and he had certain authority, he was uh, the president of, uh, of the uh, Republic of Serbia and then of the former, Yugoslav, uh, uh, former Yugoslavia, the Republic of Yugoslavia. But uh, when he was finally tried, he was, tried a, uh, he was, of course, tried as an individual, and he held no such official position at that point. In fact, he'd been kind of given over to the uh, ICTY, the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia, by the sitting government of Serbia. You know, we hear the word genocide, we hear crimes against humanity, we hear war crimes. Are there def definite different, different definitions for each? Absolutely. So, uh, so first of all, when we talk about crimes in international law, we are essentially, we are talking about conduct of individual human beings, what's called individual responsibility for a range of activities that are prohibited and not just prohibited, but subject to criminal sanction and process. So these include things like piracy. Piracy has for thousands of years been uh, uh, not only unlawful for you or me to conduct it, but subject to criminal process. But more recently, and if we talk about things like the International Criminal Court, we're talking about essentially four things. We're talking about crimes against humanity, which is a category of, of um, activity, uh, war crimes, which can only be uh, activities that are conducted in the context of an armed conflict, uh, and our specific uh, breaches of uh, of uh, the codes of uh, of conduct in armed conflict, uh, and then we can talk about genocide, a specific uh, uh, active set of activities uh, which are also applicable to both an individual and to a state. Uh, and then the the fourth category is aggression, uh, and aggression is a really uh, a kind of newly added thing and and a lot more uh, problematical. Why is it problematical? Well, uh, well, because you have you have to be able to get <laughs> who you're going after, mm. uh, and uh, so again, a state may commit aggression, uh, but that's a basic breach of of relations between states. But again, you don't try or prosecute a state. Uh, so, if we're talking about an individual, like on uh, like uh, the president of of uh, Russia, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, then he would. Uh, there's two things. First of all, the state itself has to consent that this standard applies to them. And uh, of course, Russia has never accepted that and uh, cannot be tried uh, in absentia. You would have to arrest him, uh, then uh, subject him to a process. And the ICC doesn't have jurisdiction over the crime of aggression with regard to Russia, so, or Russians, even nationally. You know, you're working on a report on this right now with, with colleagues. Have you come to any conclusions yet? 
So uh, we're working on a report looking at the state because uh, it's very hard to um, project in advance regarding individuals. We see a lot of terrible things on on, uh, television, and I have personally investigated in many parts of the world such things. Uh, But to, to link an individual, not just to the actual activity, but to the intention, particularly for genocide, where you need not only the conduct, but the intent to destroy the group as such, uh, that's very difficult to do, and especially if you're trying to uh, pursue an individual for the command responsibility, you have to show that they really intended or gave the order to specifically destroy the, individ- the group uh, as such. That's not easily done. Whereas the state, it's a lot clearer for the state. The standard, uh, the bar is not as high. Uh, you just have to attribute certain conduct. There's no doubt that uh, Putin is responsible as a head of state. There's no doubt that, uh, you know, Russian troops are in Ukraine. It's hard to, you know, deny that. Uh, It's hard. uh, By the way, the conduct of of specific armed forces is presumptively attributed to the state. So, you know, if they are armed forces with insignia and so forth, I don't have to prove much. That's already the responsibility of Russia because they're not supposed to be doing this in the first place to the opposite. They're supposed to be preventing genocide. The actual duty is preventing genocide. Uh, what what kind of penalties, uh, I guess, come out of these, uh, these these accusations? I guess you'd need a trial first, but you know, are, are there penalties? Like when you look at you know every day of the headlines, Ukraine looks like it's just been torn apart, and, and these are people well, who have to put, put themselves back together again. Well, first of all, let me just correct that something with regard to state responsibility. You do not need a trial. That's that's a whole other thing. Uh, between states, the normal conduct of international relations is not conducted through trials. Uh, I mean, when's the last time you ever heard of Canada tried on anything? It, it doesn't happen. In the last hundred years, there's only been 200 contentious trials uh, in all of international relations uh, between states at the International Court of Justice or its predecessor, the Permanent Court of International Justice. So, so states don't try each other or go or dispute before a court. Uh, that's that's more about individuals and, and businesses and things like that. So, uh, uh, no, governments between them, Canada, the U.S., simply need to make a decision whether they believe there's a breach. And by the way, this is, applies to general international law. If there's a boat, that uh, a ship that comes into our waters, we don't wait for a court to make a determination. Mm-hmm. We respond immediately. We send a, a, a ship out or a plane and we say, get the heck out of our waters. Uh, and, and so it is. We protect our own territory, our own sovereign jurisdiction, and so forth. Uh, and now what can con- the consequences from this are much greater for states than they are for individuals, because, of course, an individual is only subject to the limits of a legal process, which means the worst that can happen to them is they, they stand trial if they're found guilty. And not all of them are found guilty. Just be clear about that. At the ICC, there's been 14 successful trials conducted, completed in the last 20 years, 10 have been found guilty, but four have been acquitted. So these are amongst the most serious of of allegations and four acquitted. So, but if an individual is found guilty, then what happens to them? They go to prison, but that's all that happens to them. There's not billions of dollars restituted or reparations paid uh, and so forth. That can happen with states. John, uh, I want to thank you for joining us. Very interesting perspective on this. I really appreciate it. You're welcome.
John Packer is a professor of international conflict resolution with the University of Ottawa's Human Rights Research and Education Center. Our unpublished vote question asks you, is Russia's attack on Ukraine genocide? Yes, no, or unsure. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote. I want to thank our guest today, writer and activist Eve Engler, John Packer from the University of Ottawa, and Elliot Tepper from Carleton University. And I want to thank you for watching The Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.